together and read Revelation chapter 11. And I echo Noah's word. We totally need God to help us to understand what he's saying to us today and how we actually apply it to our lives. So let's read together. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying and they have power to turn waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language and nation will gaze upon their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had, had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. Very good. Okay. Well, Revelation chapter 11, we've just had it read to us. And we've seen already in Revelation a a movement 
We've seen uh, a journey that we're on and, and we're in the middle of God's judgments. God's judgments against those who have rejected God, who have rejected His Son, Jesus. And throughout the book, as we've seen time and time again, God is on His throne and God's kingdom will come. And God's people throughout this journey are protected from God's wrath. And so our theme today is God's protection. This wonderful idea that God will protect His people. Our true protection is in God. And there is all sorts of worldly protection around us, but it is nothing in comparison to protection that God provides. In fact, uh, you might say, well, there's always uh, another insurance product. Maybe that will give us some protection. Uh, there's some ludicrous types of uh, insurance you can get these days. Uh, you can get uh, pet insurance and all sorts of weird insurance that you can go on to make your, protect your family and make everything well. But of course, insurance doesn't last that well or do that well. Has anyone been disappointed with insurance? We've gone through the 100-page application process and uh, or the, sorry, the, uh, the claim process is even worse. Doesn't always add up. But there's other ways of worldly protection. Uh, you might think that, that people get really strong and muscly to try to fight off their enemies or whatever, but of course they age or they get weak. Doesn't always work when they get outnumbered. Uh, or there's other forms of, of uh, protection. We might think if we get lots of wealth uh, or money behind us, then we can pay to get protection. But that doesn't always work either. Or we can call on other people. Governments bring armies together and, and that's like a, a form of protection. But all the worldly protection, these different things I've mentioned, they don't last and they are nothing in comparison to God's mighty power because God is incredible and like no other. We trust in God and He protects us. Psalm 46 verse 1 God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Your chance to share, how does God protect us? What does God do to protect us? Call out. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure we've all had close calls. I can think of a time when I was driving uh, with Beck and there was a kangaroo that just jumped out and managed to, to swerve and avoid it completely, made that judgment call. That easily could have been a, a very different, I was travelling at what, what, 100 or 110 or something, it was very close call, and it can happen, something like, just like that when you're in the car. Yeah. Yeah, yep, so God comforts us. He provides us comfort, that's a form of protection. Yeah. And that's a strong theme throughout Revelation, isn't it? That, there's, that there are forces that are out to, to get us or to pull us down. And yet God puts a limit as to how far that they can go. Yeah. Yep. Yes, that's right. So, yep. So. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sometimes we, we ask weird things. Snakes. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So fear, we've been singing I'm a child of God and, and, and ultimately 
part of what we see in Revelation is that God's there to be feared. God's the mighty one. We should fear him. And yet, for God's people, they're at peace before Almighty God. And so that fear is completely taken away before God. And that's, that's a form of protection, but also fear of, of, of other things from this world or evil. Yes, absolutely. God is good and he does protect us. And we thank him for that. And so, chapter 11 starts with this image of a temple being measured. This temple of God where worshippers are. And the, the measurement is, is being taken by John. And it's full of worshippers. And so, first of all, this chapter starts with a picture of safety. A safe place for God's people to come and find his protection. A place that is good to be for God's people. But just outside this safe place, there's the outer court. And that's a, an imagery that the Jewish people would be familiar with. And outside the very part of, of worship, the, the Gentiles could come in. And we see a picture from the start that there's going to be a time of trampling of God's city that goes all the way up to the outer courts. And so we see opposition to God's people. In the midst of all the trouble that's going on in Revelation, there's going to be some opposition but it's only limited harm for a limited time. This image of a number of 42 months, it's, it's a three and a half years. There's only a limited time that opposition will come against God's people because ultimately they are under God's protection. And that reminder is given at the start of this picture, or this section of, of Revelation. And it moves on then in verse 3 and 4 to talk about two witnesses. And they're going to prophesy for the same amount of time. That's three and a half years in days. And they're clothed in sackcloth. So the difficult question is, who are these witnesses? Are they two real prophets that are going to come to the earth in the form of an Old Testament prophet? And they, like Elijah's brought fire down, there's going to be fire that comes out of their mouths. And like Moses called on God and plagues came, there's going to be plagues that come upon the earth as these prophets declare things. That's probably the most literal understanding of this passage. It's got absolutely some merit, and it could be the case. Another image is that it could be these witnesses are actually the church being faithful to God in the midst of all that's going on in Revelation. And that the, the imagery of them being the two lampstands already links back to the start of the book of Revelation where the churches were called the lampstands. And so this is the church being a faithful witness at this time of difficulty, continuing to go out. There is also the possibility that this is actually um, some Jewish people coming back to faith and somehow being a witness for Jesus. The, the reality is, is that commentators are stumped on this and so I can't give you a clear answer as to what it is. It's a mystery uh, as to what the most likely situation is. For me, it's most likely two real prophets or the faithful church. But as I said, this is a really hard passage to understand. But what we are given is this image that these prophets have a powerful witness to the world whether it be the church or whether it be individuals, and that they're under God's protection. People try to harm them, and yet they find God's protection. 
that imagery of the fire coming out from their mouths to consume those that want to destroy them. This imagery could be that of physical fire. It could be the word of God going out and that, that the, the, the fire of God's word does have an impact on people as they hear it. And so the image we have is these prophets speaking and that they're, or, or these witnesses. And as a result, the world hears this message. And in the midst of this message, there is drought and plagues. There are judgments. And so the world hates it. This is a terrible message for the world. And so they turn on these faithful prophets and they want them dead. They decide that they want them gone and they try to harm them, but they can't. But the word of God is going out and it's being heard by this world that they are under judgment. And then in verse 7, we read, When they had finished their testimony, for their time had come, the beast was then that comes out of, from the abyss, will attack them and overpower them and kill them. This is probably a little bit easier to understand. The beast is an image for Satan. Satan being released from the fiery abyss, coming forward, and he attacks these faithful witnesses for Jesus. They are overpowered and killed. Satan seems to have a victory here. But the big picture is that Satan never really wins. Satan never wins in the big picture. And this shocking picture just continues because not only do these, these prophets of God die, or these people that are speaking for God, but then there's this, this cruel rejoicing that goes on. There's no burial that's given to these people that have been slaughtered. They just lie in the streets and people start rejoicing over their death and they start giving each other presents. They go, oh, isn't it great? And so they go and start giving presents because um, this damage has come. Obviously, they were being afflicted by those plagues. They were being afflicted by the words of judgment. And now they start rejoicing and start handing out gifts to one another. It's really a picture of humanity at its worst, in my opinion. Here they are rejoicing over people's blood being spilt and making a mockery of God and what he's doing. But then, of course, it doesn't finish there. What happens next? They come back to life. There's a resurrection in the middle of this story. This horrible situation turns to good. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. We see a resurrection story taking place in the midst of God's people being judged and, and under the, I guess, the judgment of the world. The death doesn't end in death and the humiliation doesn't end there. The new life enters these people as God's breath comes into them and they're taken up to heaven and we rejoice. This is a good story, a good outcome that God cares for his people. He won't let them suffer like that. Even death has no hold. We were talking about that at the start, about how God protects us. He gives us hope beyond death and these people 
these faithful prophets are given life and they are taken up to heaven. And then an earthquake. At that very hour, a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. A big earthquake comes from God's A lot of damage comes about, the city collapses, thousands of people die. And finally, I think it's the first time in the book of Revelation, we actually see people who are outside God's people actually turn to God and give Him glory and honor. We're into chapter 11 here, and this is the first time that people actually turn to God. The first sign that there's any sort of repentance in in the midst of what God is doing. It's incredible how hard people's hearts are. But finally, someone gets it and they repent. They turn to God. And so there is goodness that comes out of this whole story of these prophets coming and being slaughtered and coming back to life. Because people who had had hearts of stone, who were rejoicing and giving presents to each other, they finally realized something of the greatness of God. And they stop and repent. And so there seems to be that good that comes in the midst of this tribulation. And so as we think of this image of these these prophets and their words, and as they, they die and come back to life, there are some reminders for us in this imagery. The first is that we are given a task. We are called to proclaim Jesus. That is for us to undertake. We are to live in a way that honors God's. We are to tell of God's greatness. We're to tell of God's grace and his gospel, his goodness. But this passage is a reminder as well that we are to tell people of God's coming judgment. There is a judgment that will take place. Reject God and horrible things will come your way. Reject God and you will face his wrath. Those who have rejected Jesus will face eternal suffering. We talk about it, uh, the term hell. There is eternal torment. Jesus talked about it. And there is a call for us to also talk to other people about it. We might say, well, it's not very popular. I don't want to go out and tell people that they're going to face judgment. Well, that's the whole point. The point is, is that it's supposed to get under people's skin so that they take God seriously. No one wants to hear that they're potentially facing the judgment of God and that they could spend eternity without Him in suffering. No one wants to hear that. And yet, if we don't tell them, who will ever know? I saw a stat recently that came up and said that there's only something like 40% of people who actually believe that hell is a real place or that there's any reality to God's eternal judgments. That's a tiny number. Only 40% of people think that there's any reality to that. That's in our nation. There are truth to God's power and it's up to us to go and tell it. I know that we're, I think we're a lot better at telling about God's grace and God's gospel of, of how he can save us. But we don't really tell people the other deeper side, that the, the depth behind the gospel, that there is judgment to come, that God's wrath will come against people. And so they should turn to God and ask for his mercy and to ask for repentance. We don't do that very well. 
but I believe that there's a calling in in this passage to do it. And what do you think those prophets are doing in chapter 11? They are proclaiming the message of God's judgment. Judgment will come. And so not only are we to proclaim Jesus, we're also reminded in this image that we share in the resurrection of Jesus. There's always something positive in every chapter in Revelation, and here we see the resurrection come to the forefront. We will share in the resurrection of Jesus one day, and that's something to rejoice in. Jesus is risen, and we share in that resurrection. This world cannot harm us if we remain in Jesus. The worst that they can do is bring death to us, and then that takes us to be with Jesus. Do we need to be on guard against temptation? Yes. We need to watch out that we don't fall into the patterns of this world. But as we remain in Jesus, this chapter is a reminder that there is a resurrection for us and it will take us to be with our God and that is good news. It's great news to know that we will share in that resurrection just like the faithful prophets of God got to experience. And so there was the first image of these prophets and all that happens to them and the fire and the plagues And then we come to the seventh trumpet blast, the second image, the the image of, of Jesus now being proclaimed in a special way. Last week we looked at the first six trumpet blasts and they were six images of God's judgment to come on the world. Now the seventh, and this trumpet is actually about an announcement that Jesus is now ruler of the world. And I do have my little reveal time. It's not the most exciting today. And the reality, part of what we've been looking at in Revelation is that that we are called to continue in Jesus. And we've been part of of sticking with um, Jesus' ways. And, And today's is just a prayer. The Lord's Prayer. These words that we've said a number of times and and what we're actually praying for to be done is coming to fruition in this whole passage. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts or sins as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Have you prayed that before? The Lord's Prayer for God's will to be done? Well, that's exactly what's taking place in all the judgments and all that's going on in Revelation. And what does it lead to? It leads to Jesus going to his rightful place. With the seventh blast of the trumpets, the loud voices in heaven declare the truth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. What a beautiful picture. We're back into the throne room of God, and praises are going up, declarations of truth, that now, with this announcement, someone reigns. And who is it? Who is the reign, the one who reigns over all things on earth now? It's Jesus. 
and God the Father. No longer is this world this corrupted mess. No longer is this world full of sin and evil because it has been declared that Jesus now reigns and everything is going to be perfect. We look forward to this day because the reality of living here is that this world is broken. It's not how it should be. People still get sick. People still die. Evil still is around in some of the horrible things that we see. So little of what happens here is actually about worshipping God. And so we look forward to this time when this trumpet is given, this seventh trumpet, and when Jesus is declared Lord of all. Jesus reigns now. He's the boss. And how long will his kingdom continue for? Forever and ever. It's not like some sort of click on the fingers. This is a huge amount of time that Jesus will reign for. And it makes our lives now seem like the blink of our eyes. And the picture of that turns into more worship. Worship of God in heaven in his throne as this announcement is made. And that is good. And then in verse 18, we see how Jesus is going to set everything right as he returns. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. It's already come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Worshipping God, we see that that worship with Jesus being announced as Lord of all, now everything gets set right. The dead get judged. Rewards are given to God's people. Evil is destroyed. This is the wonderful work of God bringing about His plans, His will being done. And then we have a glimpse of something special in heaven. <coughs> Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within His temple was seen the ark of His covenants. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of fire, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. We see God's power being shown here. But what do we see in God's temple? It's the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark and why is that significant? Does it matter that we have a picture of God's Ark in the temple in heaven? Does anyone know anything about the Ark? I'll ask you. God's glory was contained in the, he chose to reveal himself through the ark. His, yes, it was God in a, a small part, I wouldn't say all of his glory, but a small part of his glory on earth that he was magnificent. Where was the ark kept when it was on the earth? The most center part of the temple. And who had access to the Holy of Holies? The high priest, very limited access to select individuals to go in before God's presence and to make sacrifices in there. And what happened to it? It got lost. The temple got destroyed, the first temple that is, that Solomon built, got destroyed when the Babylonians came. And no one knows, it's a mystery. Because the imagery we have early on in the Bible is people would touch it and they'd die. 
So, uh, obviously, people wouldn't be going and moving it too far. Uh, you could, if you were a priest, carry it with the special handles. Um, but when the temple gets destroyed, this powerful ark just disappears. And, and I'm sure in the back of my mind, well, where is that ark? Well, we get a picture here, don't we? It's in heaven. God's taken the ark to heaven. And is that good news for us? Under the new covenant of God? I think this is great news because it means that we will share in the blessing of worshipping God and the ark will be present. And of course, in Jesus, we all have access to God. So we all are going to have access to, to approach the, uh, the ark of the covenant. Every single one of us. This is a picture of us in Jesus and the new covenant having access to worship God in his glory. It was a, a symbol of God's glory here with us. It was God's power for me. It was God's blessing and God's promise. Yes. That was to do out of, of, of reverence and, and holiness to God. And he had specifically commanded that no one touch the ark. And they used to take it out for battles. For good and for bad. Sometimes they, they, the Israelites took it out for the wrong reasons. They just assumed, oh, well, God will turn up if we take the ark. And then there was that famous occasion where they lost. They thought they could manipulate God, but that didn't work out. Um, the reality is, is that God's ark had a special place amongst the people because it was God's presence, His glory in that ark. And that ark is now awaiting in heaven. And so, God's protection. We've sort of got to the whole point of God's protection and our protection is based so much in what is to come. Our hope for the future. The future for us, us is as bright as the promises of God and God's promises are as bright as anything we could imagine. Our protector is God. Our hope is in Jesus and so we will share in that resurrection. We have a wonderful hope for the future. The imagery here reminds us that evil and sin will be dealt with. It's going to be finished. Chapter 11 declares that, that Satan's finished and then it's all going to continue. It's going to transpire what that looks like as Satan is defeated. As he comes and tries to trick the world one last time, he can't. It doesn't last because God wins the day. God will set everything right. And there is a call for us to trust in the promises of God. To live each day knowing that God, you will set everything right. This world is broken and messy. It is not right, but in you there is a perfect future. In you, we will worship you. In you, we will find strength. In you, we will find a wonderful future. We have a wonderful future in Jesus. Everything will be made right. And the book of Revelation is a clear reminder of that. And it's about us seeking God now. Taking God seriously. Seeking Him. Having a heart that actually wants more of God. More of His kingdom to come. Let us not get caught up in this world. Let us keep our focus. And let us hold on to those promises.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. Lord God, as we look at the book of Revelation, we earnestly ask that your will will be done. We desire everything to be set right. We desire for your will to be done here on earth. And so, Lord, we cry out for your return. May you return, Lord Jesus. And may you save people around us as we wait. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to be active for your cause, to take seriously your call on our lives, to proclaim the goodness of the gospel, to remind people that you are God and that there is a judgment coming. Help us, Lord, to earnestly serve you as the Lord of our lives. So we ask for your help in doing this now in Jesus' name.